Hello, this is Jeremiah, host and producer of the Stereoactive Movie Club podcast, with a quick note before the show begins. This episode was actually recorded way back in October of 2021. Mia and I had a baby in the fall, and due to that, some health concerns leading up to the birth, and now actually being parents of a lovely little one, we had to unceremoniously put the podcast on hold for a while. We hope you'll bear with us as we work toward getting back on track with the show in the coming weeks and months, though. Now... Here's the episode. Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I'm here with Alicia, Laura, and Stephen. Unfortunately, Mia isn't able to join us for this episode. And we're going to be talking about the 1959 film Hiroshima Mon Amour, directed by Alain René. But before we go on, let's hear from everyone about what movies they've watched since the last time we recorded. So, Laura, how about you? Watched a lot of movies, actually. I watched um, The Queen of the Damned, the 2002 vampire movie based on the Anne Rice book. And it was terrible, but it was, it's, it's, it's such a time capsule. It's really something special. Is that the one with Aaliyah? It's Aaliyah and she's so good. She's so hot. It's real. She's really, it's unfortunate. Cause you could see like, they didn't give her a song. They should, I mean, this, the movie could have mm. been great, but there could have been a few things that have made it better. Mm. Getting rid of his accent. Aaliyah having her own song because in the songs in general and more sex would have made the film <laughs> a lot better. Um, but it was really fun to watch. I made what? a friend rewatch The Fly, the 1986 version, Cronenberg last night, which nice. was great. And then I watched um, Underworld for the first time. And that's okay. another early aughts film with Kate Beckinsale. And another vampire movie? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's October. Yeah, it's Halloween. Yeah. I thought they were Halloween themed. Tis the season. It, so it's been a lot of fun. Oh, but I also watched the remake of Dune. We rewatched The Invisible Man from last year with Elizabeth Moss in it. Uh, still pretty yeah, good. And watched for the first time Jennifer's Body from 2009, which I... Mm-hmm. It was a movie that came and went at the time, and like I don't think I really knew about it, but it's become sort of a, a cult hit, I think, since then. And I think a lot of critics especially have sung its praises over the years, so I was just kind of interested in checking it out. Has anybody seen it? Yeah, I saw it a long time ago. I didn't see it when it came out. I saw it maybe like three years after it came out. I, I enjoyed it. Was that Diablo Co? Yeah. Is she the one who wrote it? Yeah, yeah she wrote it. But yeah it's, yeah, it's like Mean Girls meets Evil Dead. Um <laughs> I, I enjoyed it a lot. It was fun. And yeah. that's that's all I saw. Steven, who was the you? Who was the main character in that? I can't remember. Megan Fox a... and Amanda Seyfried. Right. right. Yeah, Megan Fox was much better than I expected because I've only seen her in Transformers and I mm-hmm. did not like that movie. So Yeah, I, I thought she was really good. Yeah. yeah. Steven, how about you? Oh, so I saw um, The Many Saints of Newark on HBO Max. And, and I did like it. Um, I like the performances and I, I like the atmosphere, but it just, I don't know if it held together very well, but I, I did like it. Gotcha. Alicia? 
Um, I saw a movie that I think I might be the last person that I know to have seen this movie. I watched Harold and Maude. Um, I, no, oh, you've never seen it either? No, I've not seen, seen it. it actually. And oh my Steven, God, you're oh my kidding. Gosh. I thought everyone, I always get whenever I say I've never seen it, people are always like, oh, I can't believe you've never seen it. So. Yeah, I actually <laughs> stopped admitting that I'd never seen it because I was tired of having that same reaction. <laughs> Yeah, I just kind of stopped talking when people brought it up because I was just like, mm, I don't have anything to say. But right. um, no, it was, um, I think it, I think it must be the type of movie where if you see it at like the right age, like maybe like early 20s or teen, maybe your teen years or something, I mm -hmm. can understand how it would be like captivating. Um, but I liked it. It's very sweet, um, but I wasn't like blown away by it. I think it's been sort of redone in a lot of, Way, more traditional ways um, since since it first came out, mm -hmm. but um, but yeah, it was really sweet and um, yeah, it's nice. And I rewatched the Maltese Falcon, which I've seen mm. a bunch of times. Nice. I was in a noir mood one night, so <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Um, yeah. Well, I, I actually I tried to rewatch that one and I hated it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was, I did get a little bored by it, but I think it's because I've seen it before several times. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that was one of the last movies I saw in New York before moving. They were playing it mm -hmm. at the Metrograph and we went and saw it, I think on my mm -hmm. birthday. So almost two, well, over two years ago now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, let's start a, a spinoff podcast where we don't watch Harold and Maude and just watch other movies and then talk about how we haven't seen Harold and Maude. <laughs> <laughs> well, now two of us have seen it. So it's yeah, up to you and Steven now. It's 50, 50. <laughs> you can get some, you can try to find some guests that haven't yeah, yeah. seen it. Maybe exactly. that's a good, yeah, that's a good, that's a good idea. I like that. <laughs> uh, maybe you just watch it every episode and you record your new thoughts on it each episode. No, we'll, we'll do one of those really decompressed podcasts where we watch one minute at a time and we just talk about that one minute every, oh. every week, <laughs> one minute at a time. It'll, it'll, it'll drag on. Um, yeah. So for those who may not have listened to the show before, this is a podcast where the five of us or this week, four of us are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made. It comes out every 10 years. The next poll will be out in 2022. So we're basically using that as our prompt to watch some classic movies. And again, this time we're talking about Hiroshima Mon Amour. But before we get into the history and background of the movie, what did each of us know about it going into this viewing? Who had seen it before? And if not, what were you expecting, if anything? And Alicia, since you picked this one, can you start us off and also explain why you chose it? Sure. Um, I had never seen it before and um, I didn't really know much about it. I'd heard of it, but um, only in a very sort of vague way. Um, and uh, I chose it because we were sort of at the point <laughs> on the list where I either like knew the movies kind of well or I didn't know them at all. So I wanted to go with something I didn't really know. And um, this one sounded interesting uh, during my Google <laughs> search. And uh, it seemed like it might be a challenge. Uh, so yeah, so that's why I chose it. Okay, and Laura, were you familiar with it? I wasn't, and I could talk about what I found out from the searching, <laughs> but for me, I just knew I liked the name. Mm -hmm. It's so a good name. That's it. And Stephen, how about you? 
Um, I'd only heard the name of the movie and I didn't know anything about it other than it was a French new wave movie and it was very popular. But other than that, I, I went into it completely cold and I've never seen any French new wave. So it was pretty much an experience for me. Okay. And I had been scared to watch this movie because I've seen last year at Marion bad. I watched that in college and it is, I think the best word to describe it to me at that point in my life was inscrutable. And I haven't watched it since that movie is to my probably 18 year old mind was just like, I could not tell you what the fuck was going on. Uh, especially now over 20 years later, I don't fucking remember, but, um, I just remember <laughs> like thinking it was like a very good looking movie, but I didn't know what I was supposed to be taking away from it. So knowing that this movie Hiroshima Monomore is by the same director, I was intimidated to watch this uh going into it but uh so now we'll move on i guess anyway uh let's go ahead and take a break we'll be back in a moment and welcome back though we've referenced it in previous episodes until now we haven't discussed a film from the french new wave 1956's In God Created Woman, written and directed by Roger Vadim, is often considered to be the first film of the movement, which grew out of a desire by post-war filmmakers in France to reject some of the traditional tenets of filmmaking followed until that point. While many of the New Wave filmmakers famously began as critics for French magazine Cahiers de Cinema, others came from a community of filmmakers known as the Left Bank. Among those Left Bank filmmakers was Alain René, who made several documentaries and shorts after the end of World War II. In 1959, René made Hiroshima Mon Amour. It and Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows the same year, along with Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless the following year, are largely credited with bringing broader international attention to the French New Wave. With Hiroshima Mon Amour, René and screenwriter Marguerite Duras explore the intersection where tragedy and trauma meet history and memory. The film opens with documentary footage reminding us of the blunt force trauma inflicted on the Japanese city of Hiroshima at the end of World War II, while we simultaneously hear a woman claiming to have seen what happened there as a man denies her claims. This exchange gives way to the central dynamic of the film, as the French woman and Japanese man, new lovers who already know the end of their brief relationship is at hand, play out a sort of cat-and-mouse scenario in which she pulls away and he pursues. A series of conversations ensues in which she recounts a formative traumatic experience as a young woman in a French town. The use of flashbacks to her traumatic past, sometimes brief, other times more drawn out, were considered groundbreaking, while the film's focus on memory and trauma, and perhaps more specifically, the additional trauma that comes from forgetting, may have been particularly poignant at a 14-year remove from the bombing of Hiroshima, which itself acts as a sort of underlying connective tissue for the characters and events of the film. Hiroshima Mon Amour was released on May 8, 1959 at the Cannes Film Festival, where it won the Fipresky International Critics Prize. Among its other accolades was recognition by Cahiers de Cinema on its list of the top 10 films of 1959, where it was ranked second after Kinji Mizuguchi's Ugetsu. It opened in the United States in May of 1960, and went on to earn Marguerite Duras an Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay written directly for the screen, 
To give a sense of what was popular in the United States, in the years Hiroshima Monomore was first released, then when it opened in the United States, the top grossing films in North America for 1959 and 1960 were Ben-Hur and Spartacus, respectively. Meanwhile, Ben-Hur was also the big winner at the Oscars for 1959, while The Apartment was the big winner for 1960. For our purposes, the film has never been in the top 10 of either the critics' or directors' polls done by Sight & Sound magazine to determine the greatest films ever made. It did, though, place as a runner-up in both 1962 and 1972. So, Alicia, since this was your pick again, can you start us off with your thoughts on the film and whether it met your expectations? Yeah, I wasn't really entirely sure what to expect, so it's hard to say whether it met any expectations, but it definitely... (laughs) It was like a devastating movie and um, I had to like take to my bed after I watched it. (laughs) I like slept for like two hours after I finished watching it because I was just like emotionally like spent. Like I found the whole flashback to what she went through being paralleled with Hiroshima and the bombing and all of that really, really just depressing and, and sad. Um, I mean, I liked it because I'm kind of melancholy <laughs> in general, and <laughs> so I don't mind that kind of thing. So I did, enjoy, I did, I did like it. I do think it's a really beautiful, like, moving film. But it was, it was like tough. It was like it was really difficult. Right. And Stephen, what were your first thoughts on it after seeing it? Um, yeah, when I watched it, I ended up watching it twice because the first time I watched it, it was very confusing to me um, just because there was a few characters and it was very um, talky and emotional. So I wasn't and it was kind of all over the place, at least at the beginning. And, you know, I'm such a linear person that I sort of need a little bit more structure when I watch movies. And so I tried to remember we did see movies like Mirror that were not necessarily structured in their dreams or, you know, they were back and forth in time. Um, but Upon seeing it again, I really did like it a lot more that time because I kind of knew what to expect a little bit. So I was able to pay attention more to the the structure and the script and, and kind of let myself go a little bit. Um, just because like, I wasn't sure if it was a love story or if it was supposed to be a story about loss or if it was a story about what happened at Hiroshima. Um, but overall, the performances were so good and I really liked the couple, even though they were very sad. It just really they were compelling especially the the woman character i don't know if she had a name so um i i just really got a lot out of it the second time and just kind of understanding the structure a little bit more was helpful and laura um <laughs> i liked it <laughs> <laughs> i yeah i thought it was um To me, instead of like a film with um, a beginning, middle and an end, it was more of just an art piece and something to watch and experience for a while. And I did. And I liked what it did. Um, I, you know, for all it was obviously extremely sad. Anything with the context of the bomb and, you know, the, the documentary footage at the beginning was so devastating but there are moments where I wasn't really sure I believed some of the things that they were telling each other. And um, I don't know if that's even the point, you know, I just, 
it was very visually interesting and I, I liked it a lot. I'm not sure. I, I don't, I feel like it's going to take some time to wrap my head around it, which is probably not good for the the podcast, but um, Mm. yeah. We'll talk it through. Yeah. That's my, yeah. Yeah. Um, I also wasn't really sure what to expect from this movie. Like I said, I was I I knew the filmmaker from last year, Marion Bad, which I'd seen before, which is a later movie of his actually. And so I was intimidated by the prospect of watching this. But as it started, I was almost immediately engrossed in it. That documentary footage um is uh, unsettling, but also hard to kind of look away from. It's very powerful. And then the juxtaposition of the kind of dual voiceovers kind of competing with each other over it. It's just like, it's, I think, purposefully um, unmooring. Like, you're sort of like, where am I supposed to be in this? And like, I think it's disorienting on purpose. And I appreciated what they were going for. Like, I could tell, like, I'm supposed to be trying to decipher this. And I felt like it it kind of revealed itself as it went in a, in a good natural progression that I found to be captivating. Um, and yeah, I, I guess the other thing is like, I didn't really know how I was going to connect to Hiroshima and the bombing. I didn't know if it was going to be something where it's the, the tale of two people and then it ends with the bombing and and they die or something. I, I didn't know that going in as it sort of like became clear that it was going to be a romance of some sort, but also involve the bombing. Um, of course, that's not what it ended up being. Um, but I, I found it interesting the way they used that terrible event and the war more generally as sort of like this connective thing between these characters and sort of like, I guess this them as stand-ins for people affected by all those events um laura and and um, be how how you forget it yeah yeah i think that was also part of the 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 narrative yeah exactly uh you you said you didn't you weren't sure you believed them do you mean you you thought the characters were lying or or there was something about the performances that that you didn't believe at first or something The, the character i think um there's some ambiguity there with um, the woman. I mean, uh, part of me took it all face value, but then part of me was like, I, you know, maybe not. Right. Maybe this is just some imagining. Steven? Yeah, I mean, I, I did feel that way as well. And and I think it kind of feeds into like she's an unreliable narrator because she's it happened to her in the past and she's trying to reconcile it with the present. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt like whenever she said something, I was like, Does this did this really happen or is this what she's kind of telling this guy, you know, knowing that they're not gonna be together that long. Let me see where this kind of plays it out mm-hmm. for myself. Alicia. I think two things, not to be like spoilers, but I think we should kind of be really clear about what her backstory was, which is that she was a French woman young during World War II and had an affair with a German soldier who was probably stationed in her town Mm -hmm. and probably like terrorizing the townspeople and that kind of thing. And when that was discovered and he was killed, she was publicly humiliated. They shaved her head. They 
they brutalized her. Her parents locked her in the cellar of her house. She had a complete emotional mental breakdown. <laughs> like it's a really, really intense backstory. So I can understand why there would be like some wondering about like, how true is this? Right. But those things did happen during World War II to women in France um, that had been found to have had affairs with German soldiers. Mm. So it's not just like out of nowhere. Um, and then the other thing is that I think because the bombing is like such an event that unless you were there, you could probably really never grasp that or wrap your mind around it, as Laura said earlier. I think like the way in <laughs> to get people to sort of understand like what a traumatic event it was, I think that the writer had to kind of invent this other story <laughs> of right. the woman to sort of bring you into that. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I'm not sure if this is what you're saying, but this is how I took it. Um, to me, it's a story of micro and macro. It's, it's like this human intimate story about her backstory that you described very well, but it's using that as almost a metaphor for Hiroshima and the war more generally mm -hmm. and the trauma inflicted. And yeah, I think to the unreliable narrator point, I mean, yeah, she she's admitting throughout that she's forgetting things even as she's trying to tell the story, right? So I guess she's admitting to her own unreliability to some degree. And I guess I I took that to be a comment on how history forgets the nuance of tragedies. And, uh, you know, like we... we we think about like, okay, Hiroshima was what ended the war. That's kind of what we're told the first time we hear about this terrible fucking thing that happened. Like in school, you hear, we did this thing as the United States and the war was over. And that's sort of stripping away all the reality of it, you know? And I think this movie is very concerned with pointing out that there's more to everything than what we can actually remember or report through history. Right. And it's just trying to point that out, like and tell people to go deeper, examine the nuance or try to recall the nuance or just understand that there was more nuance than you can even remember now or can be remembered for you by a historian or a teller of a story, you know? Yeah, they're real people. Right. Really, you know, and, and their stories are like you said, they're they're micro stories that, that had happened. So I, I understand that. Well, and also kind of how, like Laura was saying, I think the, I think the forgetting is a really important part of the story too. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily like, I mean, forgetting is the word that they use in the film, but I don't even know that forgetting is necessarily like what's going on. It's like forgetting as a way of healing and like coming back from something like that, or at least sort of moving on from such a traumatic event. I, I didn't, like you said, Jeremiah, when it comes to Hiroshima, like the only thing I ever knew about it is that we dropped a bomb on it mm -hmm. and it ended World War II. I did not know what, si what the size of the city was. I did not know where in Japan it is. Didn't know if it ever recovered or what, like I had no idea what even happened to it after World War II, after the bombing, no idea. Just had never even... 
I just thought the story is the bomb, you know? Right. Um, so it was interesting to me too, to see like, oh, like it is, they did like rebuild and recover from it. And um, to see that side of the story too, I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I couldn't help but think of more current tragedies, more recent tragedies, as especially during the opening. Like there were shots yeah. of the the museum about the bomb mm-hmm. that reminded me almost in a one-to-one way of things at the 9-11 museum, for instance, of like, mm-hmm. you know, twisted girders and things like that. As much as we make a big deal out of 9-11 in this country, and especially us who live in or have lived in New York, um, I mean, it's the scale of it compared to what happened in Japan is, you know, it's almost nothing in comparison. Um, it's Yeah, it's just like an immensity to to that that is hard to comprehend. So I wonder if that somehow connects with Renee's background doing documentaries of him like trying to to portray truth and, and then moving into this more fictionalized storytelling and filmmaking of trying to find ways to instead of tell truth more like give you a sense of truth and I think that that's what this movie is trying to do is trying to get at the sense of of reality instead of just explain reality word by word if that makes sense yeah, I mean, just the idea that he chose Marguerite Duras to write the screenplay and they work together hand in hand to do it makes sense. It demonstrates what you're saying. If you read anything by her or, you know. I don't really know her work. Can you expand on that? Well, it's very stylized. It's um, it's sort of the same story mm. in a lot of ways that she's, and I, I don't think this is different even. I think that the screenplay demonstrates my point. I think when she was um, very young, she had a love affair with um, an Asian man. And then she's written so many um, books about it in different ways from different perspectives. I thought it was interesting when I was doing a little homework on the movie that I guess like he had originally, this was originally supposed to have been a documentary. He had made a documentary before about um, I guess the concentration camps or the mm-hmm. Holocaust. And this was going to be a documentary too. But when he started to work on it, um, there had been a Japanese documentarian that had already made a documentary about it. And he kind of felt like he couldn't really say anything in the documentary format that hadn't already been said really well <laughs> by the Japanese filmmaker, which I thought was a progressive sort of take for that time. Right. Um, uh, so he instead he asked Marguerite Duras to act to to write something that was more um, like I don't know if fictional is the right word but to write a screenplay that was more about like getting at the emotional truth behind it instead of just like doing like fact 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 you know so I yeah. thought that was worked for me I think yeah. <laughs> I thought that style yeah. I thought the style actually worked for me as well. Just kind of, it kind of set the table almost for how I was going to feel throughout the movie and just getting that kind of perspective as to, you know, these were the facts or these were, even though they were the facts, they were just really emotional facts that you got at the beginning. So Mm -hmm. once she started telling her story, you were sort of set up to know like, oh, this is going to be something that's very emotional. So I, I felt like that was kind of a good 
precursor to the rest of it, but. Um, that was my question. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's fine. You, that's the, it's like the perfect intro to the it question. Intro. <laughs> well, do you so want to go, go ahead, ahead and, and ask, ask it? it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me read it. Cause I remember exactly what I wrote. Okay. So I, I asked, did the opening sequence work for you as a setup for the type of story we were about to watch? I mean, I, I already said it, but like, also, I just wanted to add that it just made me unsettled even just to watch that. So yeah. throughout, like that was the lens that I was looking for the rest of the movie through is being a little bit off kilter and unsettled, but mm -hmm. yeah, it did work for me. I just, I mean, and the moments where it looked like ash was falling mm. on their bodies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was very stylized, very serious. And yeah, it definitely worked for me. It set the stage for what I felt like was to come. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think even just that shot that you're talking about, Laura, is sort of emblematic, I think, of the approach of the film and that opening in that you're pretty sure you're looking at someone's back in those shots, but it's so close up that it's almost abstract. And then, mm -hmm. you know, like it it's it sort of like blurs the line between are you looking at the back of someone who's suffered from radiation or are you looking mm -hmm. at the back of someone who's just made love? And... It's sort of like blurring these lines from the very beginning, even as they're pretty quickly then moving into documentary footage and dealing with reality. Um, and I, I do think it sets up the story very well in that way, just because it, it like like Stephen said, it's unsettling and uh, it just keeps being unsettling. So, <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah, for me, I found it a little like when I went when I I did have to go back and rewatch it like after I finished the movie, um, because when the first time I watched it, I was kind of like, "What am I supposed to be paying attention?" Mm -hmm. Yeah, to? I was the same. And also, yeah, some of the footage is so um, disturbing that I did I did have to kind of actually like look away from it sometimes, mm -hmm. um, especially when they were like doing the stuff with the eye, the person's eye and yeah. the young boy that had had his face mutilated. It was really, um, really a hard watch. And then to be trying to watch that and also concentrate on what they were saying, because it kind of went two ways. Like for part of it, you have this, the back and forth that I think Stephen, you already mentioned, or somebody already mentioned where the woman saying, I know Hiroshima, I was there. I've seen the hospital. I, I saw the, I saw the, the people or the food. I can't remember everything she was saying. Mm -hmm. And the man was saying, you don't, you didn't say anything, you know, nothing, you don't know what you're talking about. There's that. And then there's also the like level of where she is kind of just like recounting the facts of like how many, how, how powerful the bomb is and that kind of thing. And I was kind of just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I felt like I had the same feeling that, and we, I think we already mentioned it also is when we watched mirror yeah. where like the first, the first 10, 15 minutes, I was just kind of like, what am I supposed to be paying attention to? And, um, so I didn't stop it and Google it this time, like I yeah. did with mirror, but I did go back after I finished watching the movie and rewatch the beginning. But I think, I think actually like maybe that was something that the filmmakers is kind of trying to do it's kind of trying to make you understand that like it's hard to make a film about something like 
an experience, an event like that, like there's only so far you can go if you, I think I already said it earlier, like if you weren't there, there's only so many ways you can portray it and only so close you can get to it. I think also those images that you're talking about that are very disturbing to see and to realize those happen to real people. And I'm looking at them right now on the screen in front of me. Mm. It, it does make you look away. And that is the antithesis of what a movie wants you to do. A movie wants to captivate you and keep you looking at it and, and keep you engrossed in this story. And so I, I think that there is a distancing that is done on purpose, for sure, to be able to tell you a story that somehow simulates a feeling around what he's trying to convey. Rather, Because if he just showed you mutilated people for an hour and a half, it would be probably too hard to watch and easier to kind of look away and miss something about. You know what I mean? It's easier to like engage and get captivated by and engrossed in the story that we do get told after we move past those documentary images. It's almost like he went there with the mission of making a documentary and the beginning of this film is him getting that out of the way the same way he had to like push it out of the way to make a narrative mm -hmm. film in real life. Yeah, it's almost like just encapsulating his sort of experience mm -hmm. of how he came to the film on top of like on top of everything that it encapsulates about the movie itself right. and the story mm -hmm. you see in the movie. It's interesting. So none of us had seen this before. It's an early work in this movement of film. So many filmmakers, especially in America, were influenced by the French New Wave. And I, I kept imagining connections to other films, which I'm not sure if they were intended by the filmmakers that made these other films later or not. But like even the beginning with the voiceover over these disturbing images in, in a way reminded me of vaguely of La Jetée. Even like the romance and the way it felt like kind of overwrought and very emotional with v almost in a minimalist way, like reminded me a little bit of like In the Mood for Love um, and maybe maybe some other Wong Kar Wai a little bit too. Then as we're talking about the use of the documentary footage and the way it kind of hits you in the face and makes you look away, that's reminded me in a, in a way of what Spike Lee does at the end of a lot of his movies. So he almost reverses what Rene does, where he has like real footage at the end of a movie mm -hmm. that is sometimes seemingly only tangentially related to what you just watched, even though there's a clear through line usually. And it's like hitting you in the face with the reality after you've watched this fictionalized account of a thing. And it's, mm -hmm. it's like he's doing in those movies. Um, I'm thinking of Black Klansman, Malcolm X, um, the last one he did last year that I'm blanking on the name of where they go to Vietnam, he's reversing what Rene does in this movie where he's hitting you in the face with reality, then like kind of pulling you out of reality so he can actually tell you the story he wants to tell you. I'm not good at drawing like parallels between film styles and techniques between movies. Like it's kind of like always the last thing on my mind. Right. <laughs> Although I will say I thought this movie was beautiful. Um, really mm -hmm. beautiful, especially the sequence where they're cutting back and forth between Nevers and Hiroshima mm -hmm. um, towards the end. Um, I just was, I, I thought it was like so emotional and it's just like footage of two cities, <laughs> like moving at a mm -hmm. certain speed, like, right. but it still was so um, just like sad. 
It just made me think of mirror a lot though, mm -hmm. just because of the way that the structure wasn't necessarily linear. And I had to kind of remember that as I was watching it, that nothing has to necessarily lead into something else. They can go backwards and forwards in time, right. or some of the things that you see might be stylized. So they might not necessarily be based in reality, but they are the reality of whatever the person is thinking or talking at that point. Yeah. Um, so I'm much more of a story type of person when I, when I look at mirror, uh, look at movies. I also, thought of mirror for the same reasons you guys were describing. I, I think to me, what makes this movie more engaging is that the distancing while it's there in this movie isn't as extreme. Cause in mirror, you almost never see the main character. You're always mm -hmm. like in their head. You, like sometimes you're in their POV, you know, mm -hmm. um, or just seeing their memories. And I think we see that character in a mirror at some point, literally. Is that true? <laughs> and not much else in that movie whereas here like the the main character is on screen and it's a little easier to connect with i mean mm -hmm. i think tarkovsky is like purposefully doing that like distancing thing that further distancing mm -hmm. in his movie and it's mm -hmm. just a little harder to engage with if you're not accustomed to it and sort of i found this movie still like very engaging throughout even even as it did remind me of me or a movie that i did not find as nearly as engaging the other yeah. thing with Mirror, too, is that it's like, well, this movie is only doing one or two storylines. <laughs> Maybe mm, three storylines are kind of happening. But like, I think it's really just two. But um, I mean, Mirror has like, I, I wouldn't even call it multiple storylines. It just has multiple like threads right. that are running mm -hmm. through it. Characters kind of playing uncomfortably close relationships. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of um Freud's Freudian stuff going on yeah, here yeah. for sure. Um well I don't know, did you guys think these characters were like healthy, <laughs> adjusted people? No, no I bet they're <laughs> I mean, weren't they people? both married? Yeah. They were both married to other people and or at least they, they said they were together. That's yeah, true. That's true. Yeah. I don't know. They had that they were very like they both kind of had this sort of like live in the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. type of thing and i think that that can be like a very healthy attitude to have but mm -hmm. i guess it sort of depends on where it's coming from right. <laughs> or how yeah. much in the moment you want to be yeah i mean i thought these two characters were very traumatized people i mean for good reason as they right. you know um mm -hmm. so it, it, you know, like I wasn't making any moral judgment on them for oh, committing no, no, adultery no. or having essentially <laughs> a one night stand or anything. No, um, me neither. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's just like an extreme circumstance that they're putting themselves into, I guess. I guess I asked because she, at the beginning of the film, they both seem like relatively like, okay. <laughs> You know? yeah. and they're just like yeah we're just having this you know we're just having like a good time and right. you know i mean you can see a little bit there's like that flash that that she has when he's like sleeping where she flashes mm -hmm. like her dead lover you know mm -hmm. lying there but um but other than that you're kind of just like oh like will they won't they <laughs> <laughs> and then it becomes this like a whole other thing where she's really like deeply 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 triggered by this experience <laughs> right yeah well when i first did watch it i did wonder like would she stay there but then when i watched it the second time i was just like this is just a complete fantasy of her staying in this moment and being yeah there. so I, I i think that's true 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Was there ever a moment that you guys, that you did really think she might end up saying? I did. Like I said, when I first did watch it, I, I thought maybe um, just because she just didn't. I, I Yeah, it's kind of like an interesting thing. It's just like she she didn't feel like her life was kind of going where she wanted to, to go. But this person seemed very interested in her. And maybe that was part of the chase that she had with him. Like she was sort of like drawing him in, but pushing him away at the same time. Mm-hmm. But the second time, I didn't think that so much. I don't know. I think the further it went on, I thought the less it mattered whether she was going to stay or not. Like it, it became less a pertinent question to me. I, I think, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? It was it just sort mm-hmm. of became about like, whatever happens happens almost i don't know so it was like something they say to fill space at that point what do you mean well i mean they say it a lot right yeah okay. yeah I, I guess it's just a way for them to keep engaged with each other and continue yes. the conversation and then, so then if he asks her like will you stay then she has to answer and so they get a little more time talking together or something you know i think that makes a lot of sense what does everybody think of the fact that th- this is a joint production, Japanese and French, you know, by a French filmmaker, though, and the cast is the two main cast are French and Japanese, but we don't really get a lot of his story and we don't flash back to history at mm-hmm. all of this, as far as I remember, right? So it's not mm-hmm. like an equal representation. And I'm not like trying to deride it for that. I, th- I think that probably the mission statement of this movie was to somehow express something to a, a French audience, probably more than a Japanese audience, um, about Hiroshima and the experience there. But what, what do you think, Laura? Well, some of the synopsis I've read have talked about how um, it's, a, it's an overgeneralization, how they both just talk about tales of their past loves, et cetera. And as if it's an equal thing, but there's nothing equal about the stories that are told. And um, I just agree with you, but it's, I, you know, the way it was described is something kind of different from what I've read. Right. Do you think it, the movie would have been improved by having more in the balance from his perspective of his past? I just wonder why it was described as if it was an equilateral thing. I think that's where Mm -hmm. the movie was done a disservice. I don't think it needed it. It just wasn't that. Sure. Yeah. Because it did describe, I think, in one of the synopsis I read, like he talked about how his family died when he was at, when he was in the, he was a soldier and he did talk about this past loves, but there was nothing there. But I felt like that was just the movie was more about her than it was about him. Yeah, totally. It was her reaction to him. So that was, that was okay for me. It was just sort of like I was taking it in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's almost, yeah. in a way, you could argue, our surrogate because he's the one like interrogating her and try- and getting her to share her story, whether seemingly she wants to or not. Sometimes, um, right? Mm-hmm. There is a Even little stalker. It takes a little slapping. Him, right? Yeah, the slapping. That's, yes. that's an intense moment. That was, that was so bizarre. Crazy. <laughs> I guess Crazy. I just like wrote that off as like one of those things that used to happen in movies. Men do then. I don't even know if like. You know, I, I don't want to say that men did that and it was okay, but it's like a thing that gets portrayed in movies as like a way to just like snap someone out of something. And well, I took that's it as the that way I took hand. it. Yeah, she was yeah. definitely on the verge of hysteria. Right, mm-hmm. and it was like, thank God he slapped her. 
Yeah. Well, everybody turned around like. <gasps> but also, <laughs> the sound design right there was doing a, a, a fucking ton of work. Like, I didn't realize until he slapped her and all the sound came back on how, like, tunnel visioned or tunnel audioed, I guess, the, the sound design mm-hmm. had become. Like, it had just whittled down to, like, just her voice and you're just completely in her head. And he mm-hmm. smacks her and then you hear the street sounds and the restaurant mm-hmm. sounds mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. And so it's like he's kind of smacking us to pull us out of this thing too but then did you listen to the sound for the rest of the film and how intricate and interesting it was i I thought the sound was great i thought it was wonderful in the film the music and the sound were both just like really really effective it was something quite i've never yeah yeah it was good I I also wanted to mention about like for for the for his story that I thought it was so strange when he told her like oh yeah my family died or my family was here during the bombing I don't even remember what he said right. um, but I was like somewhere else in the army I had been I was stationed somewhere else mm-hmm. and then she says oh lucky you <laughs> and he's and, like and yeah, lucky, lucky me, me. <laughs> it was very strange. Like, lucky i mean i guess lucky that he wasn't there but like you you know i wouldn't right. use that that's not the phrase that i would use that i would say to someone after they told me their family was like killed in a bombing like that <laughs> i oh, i actually that. appreciated that because of the clunkiness of yeah. it and mm. i do think there was a lot of even to the point when she talked about her reaction when the bomb hit and where she was and what she did. There was just a lot of clunkiness. It was not mm-hmm. a lot, mostly it, it wasn't easy to hear and she didn't try to make it palatable. And like, she didn't, it, she just said the weird shit that, that, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, what can you say really when someone tells I don't you something know. like that? So she was like, I was astonished they did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was fucking glad the war was over and I was really sad you know paraphrasing paraphrasing here i mean you're but. pretty close though <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, I, I, there was a lot of un-pc conversation yeah yeah Th- that's sort of another question that i didn't know if we wanted to like broach but that the film sort of asks everybody to sort of ask of themselves i think it's like was it worth it for us to have done that for the u.s to have done that mm-hmm. you know like I think a lot of people think it was not worth it. And a lot of people think it was totally worth it. So, you know. Oh my God, a that's of... a question. Good thing you didn't ask that. <laughs> well, we can talk about it, but it's like, oof. I mean, are we one. actually <laughs> trying to answer it? I, I... That'd be a different podcast, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, a... I think it definitely was not worth it, but. I mean, how can, I mean, how can you see that kind of devastation yeah. and mutilation? Well, well I, yeah, I mean, you know, this is going to sound terrible, but it, it's the perspective, honestly, because, you know, the president at the time would have had to send in more troops to Japan and it could have killed tons more people. You don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the line that they sold, but it's also, I think you have to factor in, we never would have dropped an atomic bomb on a country that was white. You know, they, they were Asian people who were otherized. Mm -hmm. They were otherized by the people in charge in this country and the people who lived here, who, we're okay with that happening on their behalf, you know, for generations really um, mm-hmm. until like, there's been sort of more like, I, I don't want to use the term revisionist because that has almost taken on a negative connotation, but like a 
an unearthing maybe of like the actual truth of the matter, like as far as I'm concerned anyway, that I, I just think it's a racist act to drop a bomb on a country and a culture that you see as other. And I think that was mm-hmm. clearly the case. Like when you look at the propaganda of the day, like they, they were portrayed as not the same type of people as us, you know, and yeah. we didn't do that to Germany. Well, we did. We didn't do that to Germany, but we did a lot of bad shit to Germany. No, <laughs> like sure. we firebombed Dresden. I, like, yeah, I, know. I don't know. I, I kind of have, the, I have a similar take as Stephen. um, and my grandfather fought in the Pacific, so maybe that's also why I have the same take. Like he, his, he was in the Navy, and the ship that he was on got hit by kamikaze, and it was like a really, really traumatic event for him that he would still talk about until literally until the day he died. Right. Um, so for me, I kind of, I don't like it, but I do. I am glad that we found a way to end it as quickly as we could. <laughs> But I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would go as far. I don't know what the, I don't know what the perception was at the time. I don't know if I would go so far as to call it like a racist act or just like an act of like desperation. I mean, and I maybe it does, it's both of those yeah, things. Yeah, I think it could be both. Yeah, it's much more complex than, you know, than what we're, we're talking about. It. Yeah, and, and I'm obviously speaking from a place of hindsight, you know. It's easy for me to say this, but I do believe it, you know, like from oh, my... Yeah perspective of being what 70 80 years later at this point mm-hmm. um but yeah i don't know wait no, no i respect I, everybody's take i'm not i'm not just yeah. i'm not saying you're wrong i'm just saying like you know it's just for me that's how that's where i fall that's where i come down on it mm-hmm. i but, could just see the perspective of both of both of what you're saying and that's why i said that i mean you you know right lives are lives so like it, it just mm-hmm. depends on, mm-hmm. on what your thinking is it's just hard to see though that footage of the mutilation and the deformity and not to me just be disturbed by man and man's inhumanity to man. Yeah. Even if it is in context makes sense and what was going on then it just I should have expected that we were gonna get into this <laughs> considering the subject matter, but yeah. For some reason, I couldn't let my mind even mm-hmm. approach it. Right. I mean, I think that there's even some thought. I'm not sure when this emerged, if it was like pretty quick after it happened or in more recent decades that like it was done as much to scare other people as to stop the war and punish the Japanese for attacking us. Pearl Harbor and then, you know, having a war with us, but as a show of force, a deterrent to other countries that like, hey, we we have this weapon, so don't fuck with us. And then, but of course, then it just turned into an arms race for Mm. 40 years. So how'd that go? Do you think to your point, Jeremiah, this film is something about scaring people in and of itself in a different way? I mean... I, I think it is. I wouldn't connect it to what I was just saying necessarily. I do think this movie is supposed to kind of scare you about forgetting things like th- that. There's a horror to forgetting things that allows you or causes you to sort of like lose a sense of the actual reality that was lived by either you or other people involved in something. 
I mean, to me, like that when we're talking about this movies about memory and forgetting, that's it, it's it's a scary, I think, diagnosis of that. Yeah, I felt I came away feeling like the filmmaker is very anti, um, anti what anti Hiroshima <laughs> bombing, and just sort of I don't know if anti war in general is the way is the right word, but definitely against like using the atomic bomb, especially when there was there was footage of protests, mm-hmm. you know, people walking around and holding the signs, basically protesting the use of that type of bomb. And like you said, the arms race that happened in the aftermath of that has been probably one of the most destructive things that's happened in our society in the past 80 years or whatever. Like it's, there's no end to it seemingly. Right. Not yet. And boy, do I hope we don't see one. <laughs> you don't want to see an end to it? No. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Go well. Yeah. Yeah, it can only end badly. So, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's the perspective you're taking. If that's the yeah. ending you're yeah, envisioning, then yeah. Yeah. And then, yes, I don't, I do not want to see that either. Of course. <laughs> Jeez. Do we want to talk more specifically about the style of the flashbacks and the way they worked in the editing. I know we've talked about it from like a story perspective, but anything. The nonlinear aspect. Yeah. And and just apparently it was groundbreaking at the time. I feel like we see it in movies all the time and TV shows all the time now um, to, to its stupidest extreme, like in family guy where like, you you know, like they just cut to something that happened to somebody. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in this movie, like it's almost starts off. I don't want to say subliminal because it's not that quick, but it's like, these edits to footage of of her previous life and you kind of don't know where you are in it and there's nothing really even going on it's just like a a tableau or like a, a slow tracking shot maybe and you're just kind of seeing something and then it gets connected later to like once she actually starts to go into the story and it they become longer and more thoroughly depicting of her experience um Mm -hmm. that was a weird way of saying that but whatever no i mean they they saved pieces till the last bit to to explain how it all went down the shaving of the head we see her with a shaved head multiple times before she explains that they did that to her you know but even before that what i'm saying is like there are shots where you just see like the countryside of france I think we I think we see that before we really see her and the town or the people, you know, and it's it's almost like a prelude to what's coming. And I what I was I guess I was trying to get at is like that's something that I think we're used to seeing at this point. What is it now? Uh Our- 60 something years later. And for people then, I'm not saying this is the first movie to have done a thing like that, but it wasn't a thing that was widely done. And that's like what the French New Wave filmmakers were all about. It was like trying these different things that were a little more, a little less fluid, a little less about continuity of filmmaking. They wanted, they they were more willing to kind of expose the seams of the movie and- uh, And shatter time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, like, yeah. imagine being in a movie theater and seeing this in 1959 and how that thing that we maybe take for granted and don't even notice would have been, like, mm-hmm. just revolutionary to see it that in that moment. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw something um, 
it was like a little short like documentary a professor was talking about how in a movie that was made before then like the the boyfriend that she had in germany would have been like a character like you would have like seen their romance and you would have seen how they interacted with each other so when he did get killed it would have been more devastating instead we get like the first shot we see like of him he's kind of bloody because she yeah. sees like her lover like her the hand move and then she sees that shot and you're like what is that that's really jarring to me right so you just see bits and pieces of him throughout the movie so you don't necessarily have a connection with him but you do with her and you know what her feelings are but you don't necessarily know anything about him other than you know his background as being a soldier right and i, you don't I think know he's yeah. german yeah, yeah. too you don't yeah you don't know you don't know anything about him yeah so i just thought that was kind of an interesting take because as an audience today we would be used to that we would be used to not having that person be a character necessarily Mm -hmm. but or there'd be something like easter eggs (laughs) to show us the kind of character yeah i did think it would kind of played out almost like how how a lot of like murder mysteries play out on tv nowadays where you get dropped these little like breadcrumbs Mm-hmm. about what the what's the what the backstory was here before right the murder happened <laughs> that was like for me i guess that's like a very easy comparison because that's a lot of what i watch but i definitely noticed a parallel to that right but yeah i mean i'm sure at the time it must have been either conf- very confusing or totally exciting yeah <laughs> or maybe both i don't know and but. it's uh, i mentioned in the intro for this uh talking about the the movie um that it, it's this movie the 400 blows and breathless are sort of considered the trio of films that really let the world know that this movement was happening in france and like they all have some version of this filmmaking technique being done in a new way, you know, like this with the flashbacks, uh, 400 blows. I always think of like the, the freeze frames, um, and also with Jules and Jim, which isn't, you know, another Truffaut movie. And then, um, breathless, like the jump cuts, like they're calling attention in these movies to the fact that you're watching a movie. They're not trying to like hide Mm. the cuts. They're not trying to make you think you're watching a play or, reading a book or something like they want you to be aware that you're watching a film. Um, and I, th- I guess that's what they largely get credited for in the French mm-hmm. new wave of like owning that and then passing that along to like the, the new Hollywood gang that came in in the sixties of like Dennis Hopper and then Coppola and Boganovich and Friedkin, et cetera, et cetera. Much later. Well, like 10 years later, not even 10 years later. I'm curious out of those three films, has A, each of us seen the three that you just mentioned? And obviously we've each seen one, but, and is there one that means more to us than the other? I'm pretty sure I've seen the 400 blows. Yeah, we saw that together. That's what I thought. I couldn't, I couldn't 100% remember if that was something that we saw together or if there was, if it was a different movie. Yeah. But so I've seen that one. Um, I do. I don't remember. I remember it being about a young boy who's in like a who's having a rough, difficult home life, and being at, and it was like very moving. But um, other than that, I don't remember a ton about it. <laughs> but when you said the freeze frame stuff, I did remember. Like, oh yeah, that that gets used in there. I can't remember if I've seen Breathless or not. I would have to look it up and see what it is. I might have. I I yeah. There, like I said in a past episode, I watched a bunch of like the like foreign films you should see mm-hmm. <laughs> at one point in mm-hmm. life and like yeah proceeded to forget almost everything about many of them <laughs> so 
Yeah, I swear I didn't mean to call you guys out on it. In the <laughs> no, I don't care. Like you seen or not. It's um, fine. Yeah. Yeah, but you've seen all this. three? Yes. I'm I'm assuming your favorite is Breathless because I yes. know you, you referenced that movie a lot in your life. You know me, Jeremiah. <laughs> 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 it is. It's it's um a visually important film for me. But I mean Four Hundred Blows is, is it's an exceptional film, but it never really struck me the way Breathless did. Mm. And this one's quite something, but yeah, I've seen Jules and Jim. I, I don't know if that count. I know it's not part of the trilogy you're talking about, but I remember that I really, really loved. Jules no, I and love Jim. that. Movie. That's maybe my favorite French New Wave film. Um, that scene where they're rolling down the hill. I just love that. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of of the three that we were talking about, I don't know. For me now, it's tough. Like, I I would have put 400 blows over breathless just because i've seen it more and and have had more time to kind of like think about it and i've only seen breathless once in a film class in college and mm -hmm. i liked it and it's one of them i'm like i should go watch that again because it's it's good and i don't know I why i've only the seen the blows again yeah um but i gotta say this movie is maybe like a close runner up for me on just after one viewing like I, it was pretty powerful. Like it really, it, was. it really definitely got me. So for me, this was more moving. I felt like I said, I was really just like done in by it. So for me, I think I would rate this. One. I haven't seen breathless though, so yeah. that I can remember. So I would have to go back and watch it, but to say, for I sure. think that's really adorable that you had to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, well, I had, I had, I had, I didn't say that sooner. <laughs> I had kind of a busy day the day before, but I was literally like, I watched it and I was just like, oh my God, like I got to go back to bed. <laughs> uh, I will say for, for people who are listening to this, like I, some people listen to movie podcasts. I, I don't know if our listeners listen to ours when they haven't seen the movie, but I I think this is, it's, it's only an hour and a half. I think it's worth your time. Don't be intimidated yeah. by it. Like it's, it's really worth it. Definitely, definitely. And if you're if you're a modern yeah. film watcher, like there, there's nonlinear yeah. um, storylines out there that and films that you have seen before. It's not it's not extremely difficult. Like right. it's an adjustment, but it's not like yeah, it's 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 not. I, it's not I think that's a very good point. It's it's not extremely difficult. It's an adjustment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, I guess I yeah. just was worried that like we're talking about it from the perspective of it being about something connected to one of the worst uh, um, mass <laughs> murders of all time. And yeah. from, from my perspective, so that makes it sound super heavy potentially, but I think it's a very engaging and entertaining movie. I did like it, but I feel like a lot of these movies take more than one viewing in order to kind of mm -hmm. understand what totally. it's about. And yeah. that was, this is one of those movies that I felt like the first time I watched it, I didn't, know what I was supposed to get out of it necessarily, because as I've said many times, I'm much more of a linear thinker when I look at movies. So on second viewing, I was able to kind of kind of put certain things aside since I knew where it was going in order to kind of get more out of it. Mm -hmm. That's all I was going to add to it. Um, I do think it was worth my time, but I feel like some movies you do need to see twice in order to get more out of it. Yeah. That's a really good point. I and I think I, I think a lot of people would appreciate you saying that. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. totally. And I think even if you watch this twice back to back, that's still shorter than Godfather Part Two. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Very oh, true. Um, and they're both worth your time, in my view. <laughs> But yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I I think that like I got a lot out of this movie on the first viewing, but I definitely could imagine watching this movie again and it becoming like literally one of my favorite movies, you know, like it. it or not. No, I think I, I really liked it a lot. Yeah. Um, I but, but I think that Stephen's right. There's a lot in it that I think a second viewing would open it up more, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I have one other question. What did you guys think of the place that they went at the end being called Casablanca. the Casablanca? <laughs> I oh noticed that. I, I thought it was too on the nose. Here. I did too. I, I kind like, of rolled my eyes a little bit. Yeah, actually. me too. I was like, that's a little too on the nose. I didn't like that too much. <laughs> anyway, sorry. As opposed to the new Hiroshima Hotel. Yeah, well, that, that was <laughs> also a little clunky. I guess clunky is another theme of the film. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that I was find it that definitely clunky. good. I don't, good I, catch. I, I don't co-sign the clunky statements. I think. Mm-hmm. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was everyone's favorite scene or moment or element of the movie, if not one of those things? Stephen, mm-hmm. how about you? I think I'd mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but I, I did like that part where um, I don't know if they had names. Did they have names like no, <laughs> the, the male character? OK, the male character when he was sleeping and then his his hand flickered and then it kind of flashed to her, um, the German uh, soldier that had died. Like mm-hmm. we just suddenly see a flash of her cradling him and his in his arm and his fingers kind of twitching. And I just thought that was kind of a nice device to kind of break up what was happening. Right. Laura? There are moments inside of the moments that I like in the beginning. There's it's so beautiful and visually interesting how it's just body on top of body and you're not quite sure how to make it out. And she's saying what she saw and he's just basically saying, no, fuck you. You didn't see any of it. It's hard to take all of that in. And there was a lot of her as the mad woman, even before she was straight up saying it a lot of treating her like that. And I'm still sort of digesting that bit of it, the film. Alicia. Just to Laura's point about the, her being the, the mad woman and stuff. I think that the, I think that it was interesting to see them, to see the filmmakers try to like parallel her experience of like the physical stuff that she went through, like, biting on the walls and like her hands bleeding and stuff like Mm -hmm. that with what like actual bombing victims went through (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it was entirely successful like for me I don't know if I really like believe that but um my favorite sequence of the film I think I already talked about it was just when they were sort of coming towards the end and they were flashing between the two cities and, and the shots of the landscapes and the buildings and that I really liked that what part in that film? In the film, um, towards the end, when they're flashing between Nevers and Hiroshima, like the 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 city, the buildings, and the sky, and the trees, and in both cities, they're sort of cutting back and forth between the okay. two. There was a moment. I might be misremembering it a little bit, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Um, <laughs> I think it starts with. A f- 
I think you're, they're coming out of a flashback. And then they reveal that they're sitting in that uh, tea room. And the, the set of, of that tea room was just very striking to me. Like it just looked so kind of sleek and modern and just impressive looking. And it just struck me like visually as just like I wanted to watch what was going on here. And the sh- then they cut out to a wider shot where I think it was pretty symmetrical and it just looked so uh, like just a perfectly composed shot in a great location. And I just loved this little vignette. But I do also wonder if there was a meaning behind it of like jumping from this flashback to this sleek modern setting and kind of like pulling you out of a thing like kind of the whiplash of that uh, mm. and bringing the, you into the modern setting of the film and the two characters. Um, mm-hmm. But whatever it was, I just liked that shot, those shots. I just thought of a shot that I liked um, when they were in the bar late at night and I hated when he was like pouring alcohol down her throat, but it seemed like she was completely willing participant at that moment. Then when the, the the waitress came and took, they were like laying on top of each other. The waitress came and took the drinks and then they just sort of, they looked like children being bad. Yeah. <laughs> I liked that shot a lot. It's a good one. Okay. So how about we take one more break and then we'll come back, share our final thoughts on the film and get into our bonus questions and all that stuff. back so has the movie as far as we are concerned stood the test of time do we think it resonates today it should be required viewing i I, think okay so so you're uh, a a big yes on this yeah i mean whether the film is flawed or not it's still important Mm -hmm. and successful yeah. Alicia or Steven? Yeah, I think it does. Um, just in terms of the storytelling and, you know, that it's nonlinear. And I, I feel like the acting is so strong in that. And, you know, you feel for the characters. So I, I do feel like it does stand the test of time. You can watch that in 10 years and you'll still get something out of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Alicia? Um, yeah, I really, really loved it. And this is going to be towards the top of my list. It might even be the top of my list so far. Like Wow. I just thought it was really powerful. I mean, yeah, like there's little, there's little things that I didn't love overall, like little things, but, but overall it had a really big effect on me and I definitely felt like it resonated and it still resonates. Yeah. It might be near the top of my list too, especially after talking about it more. Like it's one of those movies that the more we talk about it and I think about it, the more I like it. Um, but the more I want to watch it again. Yeah, same. Honestly. Exactly. And, um, but I, yeah. def- I definitely agree that it, it stands the test of time. I think it definitely resonates today. Cause I think the, the things that it is trying to explore about memory and tragedy and trauma, um, are just, that's always going to be relevant, I think. And I, I think we've all gone through multiple things as like a country a world lately that uh, we we're going to have tough times remembering all the nuance of, and they're just going to like be flattened into these like 
cartoon versions of history at some point where, you know, at some point we're just going to talk about the pandemic as like this thing as distant as the Spanish flu is to us, you know? And um, we'll post something on social media saying, never forget. Exactly. And yeah, and, and we that gets to, to leave the 9-11 is another one even. that even though I said earlier in the episode, exactly. that's like such a smaller scale disaster and, and loss of life. It's still like a giant event that happened. And, you know, I think you could argue that it's misremembered more and more every day. And, uh, you know, there's a president who got elected by fucking lying about people cheering ab- about whatever. I'm not going down this path. I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> and then look what we did to Afghanistan in the name of, of this. So it's like, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's good that you talk about how it's numbers wise. It's just this small fraction of what sure. happened sure. here because it feels you could forget that. Cause well, it's it, like, so monumental for me. I feel like on a personal level, you kind of have to like forget, not forget stuff, but you kind of have to like let your brain move on from things. Yeah. But like on a societal level, like, yeah, on the anniversary of 9-11 every year, do I want to see that footage again? No, but like maybe we should see that footage every year like over and over again on that day to remind us like how bad it was or to 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 demonstrate to people that weren't alive then or whatever like how major it was i don't know if it's possible to do that but right right now i think even i don't think it's just that macro scale though of like the world defining tragic events i think it's also there's stuff in here about like just your own personal trauma and the way we have to forget pieces of that to just live and keep yeah. going. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that that's also going to always be relevant. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure we all have experiences of this. Of like, you think back to like an old relationship or an old, like something that bad that happened to you years ago and you can't remember all the details of it all the time. Um, but you know it happened to you and you kind of can maybe have a feeling about it. And I think mm-hmm. that that's what this movie is trying to capture, you know? Yeah. It's less about the memory. It's more about the feeling for me. Whenever I, I think of something, I don't remember the details, but I remember how I felt. About right. It. right. Yeah. yeah. What was everybody's take on the guy that started speaking to her in English at the end of the movie and started talking to her? What did you get out of that? I was curious because I, mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what to make of him. I thought it was kind of her replaying the same sort of scenario over again that she had had with okay. the first guy and, and sort of like, she sort of almost like she's trying to use this as a way to like escape and she's doing it over and over again, or exp- I don't know if it's escape or just experience mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. again for the, for the maybe first time or what I, you know, I don't know the right phrasing to use, but I think it was just a way of her like trying to like, replay the scenario again mm. okay yeah I, I wondered if that was it too so alicia do you want to pose your bonus question to us sure um it doesn't relate to this movie in any way <laughs> for me personally but what is i was curious what's the worst movie you've ever that you can remember ever like sitting through the whole thing in the movie theater okay mm-hmm. um, i'll go first since i'm you know on the list um panable that movie that came out with uh, <laughs> with it was the it was the Silence of the Lambs sequel, I guess, oh. with Julianne Moore, 
Um, okay. It was it was so terrible that eating. I just remember there was a scene at the end where I was like, I just got up because I was like, I've had enough. I just can't take this anymore. <laughs> and I got up to walk out and then those credits rolled. So I'm like, oh, I, I made it through <laughs> this movie. But it was so it was so terrible. And I guess there's a lot of build up with that movie. So I just yeah, it was awful. Yeah, that's that's not a good movie. um i will say unfortunately it's a movie by a director i really like um there are two movies by david lynch that i'm not a huge fan of one is his version of dune which i just fall asleep during i've never seen the whole thing and the other movie is inland empire i fucking hate that movie and i saw that one in the movie theater i think it's at this weird moment in time where certain directors were still like exploring what you could do with digital cameras and the technology just wasn't quite there yet especially on the exhibition side so you go and watch it and it's just like a fucking mess of a movie uh and it looks like a mess it is a mess like it's just ugh. i that movie made me angry to watch so it's either that or the mist which i walked out of so i, I don't know <laughs> That's a pretty bad movie too. That, I fucking hated that movie too. But but I feel like it's unfair to say that one, even though I just did, because I did leave before the end of it. <laughs> that just means you're a self-preservationalist. I, I've only walked out of like I can't remember another movie I paid for a ticket for and walked out of. There might be one other, but I can't even remember what it is. But that one I went to with my mom. And at some point, like, I don't know how far in, like 30, 40 minutes in, we both just looked at each other and like, are you liking this and we were both like no so we just were like do you want to leave <laughs> we left and it was the best decision i made that day probably wow i wonder <laughs> if if i should think of mine as, as the the one i walked out on Up well, to the you. question is, the question was what what did you i want i was curious what did you sit through the whole thing of but if you don't have one you can go with one that you walked out or you can answer both well i walked out on the brown bunny um, because I thought fresh air would have been better <laughs> than sitting in there and watching it. Um, I used to sneak into a lot of films when I was a kid. And so like Ernest Saves Christmas <laughs> was one of those movies that I watched the whole one. Um, but what I'm going to go with is Streets. Um, it's a Christina Applegate movie and it's one of those like movie exploitation films when she was trying to make it from her TV show into films and it was mm. brutal and I remember just being a fan of hers and going to watch the film and just being devastated so I've never even heard of that one either. yeah mm. so don't go watching it <laughs> unless you're ready to like really get Take a nap after. <laughs> well, I would have to do it after good movies. <laughs> so, Alicia, what was yours? Mine I just was, like a good nap anyway. So. Yeah, me too. But um, uh, I felt driven to it more than normal this time. Um, no, I think my favorite, um, or not my favorite, my least favorite movie that I ever sat through was Spawn. <laughs> with, um, <laughs> it's, it's like some kind of comic book movie yeah, about some disgusting <laughs> disgusting thing that makes a bunch of disgusting noises and looks disgusting <laughs> and it's just like a pure gross out might have well I mean it's I was like did a 
twelve year old boy make this movie? Like I cannot yeah. Yeah, deal much. with this. Pretty much. Yeah. I would I would I, say I Todd McFarlane's pretty much a twelve year old boy. <laughs> is he that is he the person that made that? Well he's I the guy who created Spawn. That. I'm not sure if he technically directed the movie, but he was very hands on in making the movie from what I understand. Um, I was so angry. Oh, there's another one, Mr. Bean. That was the other one that probably put, made me <laughs> equally angry. And that when I went to see Mr. Bean, I went with my college roommate at the time and her boyfriend, and I didn't want to go. I was like, I don't want to go see this movie. We went. It was freaking terrible. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you have to give me. I made them give me my money back for going with them to the movie. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was like, that you was, just wasted a, my you, life. Did you baller watch like Mr. That. Bean the TV show? No. Oh, I, I like the TV show, so I went to see that movie willingly, but it, I just remember it being boring more than anything. It's just bad. I don't remember anything about it, quite honestly. Mm. I just remember not in, not thinking it was a very good movie. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. So mm. <laughs> our next episode is my fourth pick. The Rules of the Game, which is directed by Jean Renoir, and it was released in 1939. It's available to stream with a subscription on the Criterion channel or for free on Canopy, and it's also available to rent via Google, Amazon, Vudu, etc. So that's it for this episode of Stereoactive Movie Club. We invite you to join us in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Stereoactive Movie Club. You can also email us at Stereoactive Movie Club at gmail.com, or you can send us a voice message on our show page at anchor.fm slash Stereoactive Movie Club. Thanks for listening. No. Bye. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. 